You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Argentina is like heaven. <laughs> it is beautiful reservoirs, amazingly high content, lithium rich brines. The only issue there is indigenous type of groups that need to be consulted with are a little bit apprehensive and understanding the work that's being done. Industry has done a very poor job in keeping the indigenous informed in South America. So we're hoping to bring our indigenous consultation expertise down there to work with the nations more effectively. And the key thing is they're just education. Industries never really educate the indigenous on what the work's being done. If you're not informing and keeping the indigenous nations participating alongside you, technically understanding what you're doing, there's a misconception that you are draining fresh water. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. The absorbent technologies. So those are the ones to keep it very simple for listeners. It's like having a bowling ball with a bunch of spikes on it. And as water passes, it grabs the lithium. Well, what's happened for the next guy that figured out the bowling ball with the spikes is someone decided to drill one million holes through the bowling ball to increase the surface area substantially. Well, that's a nice step of evolution. So now you have a bowling ball with spikes with one million holes, and then the next guys come up with a better way to put spikes within those million holes to capture even more lithium. And so those are the types of evolutions we see is people taking the existing thought process. The chemistry is always the same. It's been known for 30 years of how to extract lithium from a chemistry equation. It's just been the innovation and the excitement around the technologies people are bringing together. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Christopher Brown as my guest. When you go to sell your lithium, one of the criteria that a lot of these guys haven't factored into their analysis yet is the purchasers of that lithium want to know what was the carbon intensity? How many tons of CO2 did it take per ton of lithium for you to make this? And they're going to go down their list and they're going to rank their purchases and they'll pay a premium for those that are low intensity and you may be punished for being too carbon intensive. Christopher is the CEO and co-founder of Helios Corporation. Ironically enough, as a blanket statement, they all work. So there's no one out there that's claiming to have DLE that definitively doesn't work. They all work on a laboratory basis. To a certain extent, they all do various degrees of success with recovery. So it's not a matter of, are they the misleading? They're not misleading. They all do work to certain levels. The challenge that we have is that transition to field operations. Helios acknowledges that the world's current trajectory is unsustainable and focuses its expertise in energy, power, biomass, capital markets, and the latest environmental technology to achieve more using less. Over the past episodes, we've discussed why we need more lithium, where to find new sources, and how to unlock them from a technical standpoint. We've discussed fascinating projects and drawn a line towards a more sustainable future for the decade to come. But sustainability isn't only environmental and financial impact, it's also the human dimension. And even when lithium is literally found in deserts, those places still belong to someone and to a culture. And they historically had a role and use that wasn't lithium extraction for at least several centuries. That is true wherever you are on Earth, from South America's First Nations to Canada once, through local communities in all the places where unconventional sources of lithium are to be mined in the future. Everything in life can be done against someone else or instead in consultation. And to that extent, what we discuss with Christopher today offers a framework for comprehension, best practices and way forwards. As I mentioned in my intro, when Helios acknowledges that the world's trajectory is unsustainable, 
it's also important to ensure that the remedy is better than the plague. So sustainability is a keyword for sure and an ambitious one. From Argentina to Canada through the US, today's exploration is one of the deepest we've had in this mini-series. And I'm really thankful to Christopher for the incredible openness he demonstrated and the great pedagogy you'll get to experience in just a second. Right before that, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help others benefit from it by sharing this episode with a friend, a colleague, your boss or your team. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you today because we will be touching a topic which is, let's say, slightly aside from the usual water topics and yet quite hot right now in the water world. But before going to the depth of that, there are traditions on that microphone. And it starts with asking you to send me a postcard from the place you're at. And actually, you're in Calgary. So what can you tell me about Calgary, which I would ignore by now? Well, thank you first for having me on. I appreciate the time. And uh, Calgary is a fantastic, dynamic, young city still focused on oil opportunities here. But we're definitely working on transitioning to the new lithium brine space. And this is sort of an interest area of ours. And uh, we're actually quite the emerging tech technology hub as well. So, you know, Calgary has been quite the dynamic young city that's slowly growing onto its own. And it's just been a fantastic place to live and work. So oil tech hub and in a transition phase, does that have a link with what you're doing today at Helios? Oh, 100%. So the work we do is right now, a lot of ex-oil and gas guys, they're taking their fundamental technology experience and transitioning that to how to better extract critical minerals from Alberta. And there's an exact correlation for skill sets that go across the board that focus on how to best and optimally extract subsurface lithium brines to make a commercial today. And we're in close proximity, University of Calgary, where we have a lot of access to amazing technical talent that's looking at the next generation type of lithium recovery to make these commercial opportunities come to fruition. And what's brought you to that position? I mean, I've seen that you've been in engineering, you've been in finance. How do you come across lithium? So lithium came on our radar screen as we were focused on renewable technologies. And then to take a step back, Helios Corporation, I founded in 2016 with a focus to merge engineering and finance to assist actually initially indigenous nations and empower them with environmentally positive technologies for commercial opportunities. And along those lines, we reviewed a number of investments that involved the application of renewables, but also the application of extraction technologies. And through that course of action, we had discovered that there's an amazing large depth of resources available in lithium brines in Alberta that haven't been touched or properly reviewed. And we thought we could bring a technical expertise to fruition that would commercialize those opportunities. If I'm right, today Helios is around 70 people? There's a mix of companies that make up under the Helios Corporation and partnership groups. For example, I founded a company up in the oil sands, which became the largest environmental protection group of all the tailings ponds. 
And so that gave us direct hands-on experience with being around large bodies of water and the nature of protecting those for environmental purposes. And so that has grown from when I founded that with two people, it grown to actually over 100 employees today. Within the Helios X group, we have a staff down in Argentina who's currently reviewing resources down there for opportunities for potentially evaporation pond or DLE processes. And then we have four or five employees up in Calgary that with additional consultants are looking at how to commercialize the reservoirs up in Canada for lithium brine extraction. So each of the groups has its own focus. We do have a greenhouse focused area as well, and as well as a fiber optic company that we're working with First Nations to deploy to. So we're a diverse, trying to empower both technologies to Indigenous nations while moving along with renewables and extraction technologies for critical minerals. So a very diverse group of companies. So you mentioned this critical minerals. You also mentioned DLE. So you're active in two of the three fields of this lithium world. You have the rock mining, so that's the one you're not in. Then you have these evaporation ponds and the direct lithium extraction. And those are the two, if I'm right, where you are active. So are you active on an equal basis or what's your view into these various fields? For our focus, we're subsurface experts. We come from oil and gas industries who are good with fluid dynamics and analysis of subsurface fluids. So that's why we stay within the brine universe for lithium extraction opportunities. The other two types of lithium opportunities are pure hard rock, which involves stripping away the surface of the earth and digging down deep in the traditional mining techniques. Actually, the third type of lithium is the lithium that's embedded in clays. And this is an evolution that's continuing to grow in the U.S., for extraction of clay-based lithium, where you do like a slurry and you extract the lithium via different type of processes. But our focus is particularly in brines. And to give you an idea of what that is, is essentially subsurface, you have these reservoirs filled with salt water. And within that salt water exists lithium. And the goal here is to extract the salt water from the subsurface using wells, pumping them to surface, and then deciding on two courses of action for technology. The one proven course is evaporation ponds, and that's proven commercial and currently used. 70% of the lithium currently produced today is produced via that method versus 30% is hard rock extraction. And then the other emerging technology, which is what we're tracking very closely, is direct lithium extraction. And what that technology proposes is essentially to reduce the amount of freshwater utilization in order to extract the lithium ions directly from the salt water and then re-inject the salt water back subsurface. You mentioned Argentina, you mentioned Alberta and Calgary. If I'm right, you have a third region where you're active, which is Nevada. So is it this clay subsurface sources which you were mentioning, or is it something different? Well, each one's a little bit different, so to speak. So no reservoir is the same. And so to break each of the three basins up for visual is that in Argentina, the reservoir type we have there is like a bowl, and the bowl's filled with sediments, and the salt in the water is based in those sediments in the bowl. In Canada, we flip the bowl upside down, and that's the container type of style we have in Canada in reefs. And these reefs are filled from below with a geothermal system, uh, essentially hot water from below brought up calcium and lithium and magnesium and filled the bowl that's upside down. Now in Nevada, it's a slightly different one where the bowl is like the Argentine bowl, but it is actually being fed from below. And so the sediments and the geothermal work is drawing up the lithium to the bowl. And Nevada's play types are smaller, but there's a proven play called Silver Peak, the only producing lithium asset that's been on production for many decades in Nevada using lithium brine. 
they do evaporation ponds and people are looking to expand and hopefully create new commercial opportunities in the vicinity of that Silver Peak asset. And two of our assets are in very close proximity to the Silver Peak. So we're cautiously optimistic. The geology is somewhat similar, but we need to drill some exploration wells to really prove it. And so your expertise is in understanding what's below the surface before starting to drill. That's right. We do a combination of things, applying our reservoir engineering skills to both define the resource subsurface But then we do a lot of advanced probabilistic statistical analysis. It's a bit different because in the mining sector, they don't take a statistical probabilistic mathematical approach to their type of resource assessments. It's more of a bulk volume. I have this much resource. I drill this hole, has this much pay. I'm extrapolating this in the region and that's their number. From a more detailed technical engineering side that we bring from the oil and gas side, we take a far more complex approach to these to do the analysis, a much more sophisticated approach. So we try and do more detailed distributions of the potential resource outcomes to give us a better sense of where we should focus our monies today. And so from a ranking perspective, Argentina is like heaven. (laughs) It is beautiful reservoirs, uh, amazingly high content, uh, lithium rich brines. The only issue there is indigenous type of groups that need to be consulted with are a little bit apprehensive and understanding the work that's being done. Industry has done a very poor job in keeping the indigenous informed in South America. So we're hoping to bring our indigenous consultation expertise down there to work with the nations more effectively. And the key thing is they're just education. Industries never really educate the indigenous on what the work's being done. And so my path to success with our, our all of our partnerships we've been successfully had in Canada has merely just been keeping the lines of communication open and working cooperatively with the Indigenous nations. Please don't get shocked by the low level of details in what I will be asking because I'm really starting to discover the fields. You mentioned Argentina and you mentioned the respect of the Indigenous people living on that land. During my research, I came across the case of the Atacama Desert in Chile where there is 40 to 60% of the water resources, which is used by that lithium and brine extraction to the detriment of the people who used to cultivate that land. So if I get you right, what you're bringing to the table here is that you're bringing that consideration of the people living on that land so that it is made in synergy and in a sustainable way, right? Yeah, exactly. Like part of the issue that is the misunderstanding that the water that we're bringing to the surface is fresh. Because when you look at it and it comes to surface, it actually looks clear, looks like drinkable, bottable water. It's not. And there's a definite misunderstanding that if you're not informing and keeping the Indigenous nations participating alongside you, technically understanding what you're doing, there's a misconception that you are draining fresh water. And because of this lack of communication in South America with those nations, it's grown out of proportion. And unfortunately, misconception, politics, things that people can grab on easily tend to make headlines. And a lot of that is just a lot of misinformation about the type of nature of the water we bring to surface. A great example of work we did was in the oil sands. My reason I decided to partner with the Indigenous Nation is because the oil sand producers had very little transparency on what was going on. Birds were landing on these contaminated tailings ponds with oil and dying. And then First Nations were concerned that the oil sands were essentially taking their natural hunting ability away from them. They were killing Mm -hmm. birds on these tailings ponds. And what we did is I came up with the concept of partnering with the First Nation and bringing them to the tailings ponds. And now the First Nation is present at the tailings ponds. They see the environmental work that's being done to protect the tailings ponds. And the understanding has grown exponentially. 
Now there's very few, if any, complaints about bird landings and environmental issues around that because the First Nations present, they see the challenges. You're never going to not have a landing, for example, in these contaminated ponds, but the technology does its best to prevent it. But it was only bridging the understanding with the First Nations to see what was being done positively were we able to come to a nice compromise and everyone is actually quite content on moving forward together. We lack that in Argentina. The companies that are previously there never brought the First Nations to the table or the Indigenous peoples to see the work, to participate with the work. And this is what the skill set that Helios X wants to bring to the table. Let me be a muggle here very intentionally. You mentioned technology, but an evaporation pond, it's bringing something to the surface and waiting for it to evaporate. So what's technologic in that? <laughs> well, there is a component of fresh water utilization when you do bring this heavy high salt water. If you want, ironically enough, to accelerate the evaporation, you have to reduce the salinity. And that helps by injecting some fresh water into the system. So from a perception standpoint, that sounds negative, especially in desert-like conditions in Argentina. But from a carbon intensity perspective, so when we look at all of our concerns about a CO2 equivalents that all of us from an environmental climate change perspective are concerned with, it's actually a very low carbon intensity process. When we go to direct lithium extraction, you have the counterbalance where, yes, we use far less water, but we use a lot more electricity. And that electricity, especially in Alberta, tends to be methane-based. And because it's a carbon-intense electricity, its carbon footprint, even though physically, visually, it looks smaller, It's a much larger carbon footprint. And so it's a balance that we have to strike. Do we have a surface evaporation pond, which is naturally evaporating just water into the atmosphere, which is not too bad, but does utilize more fresh water, but low carbon intensity, or do we use DLE systems, which can be highly carbon intensive, but have a smaller footprint. So it's going to be an interesting debate as DLE systems evolve. I'd like to jump into the DLE in just a minute, but there's one last thing which I need to understand before that, which is you have these three different regions where you're active. So Argentina, Nevada, and Alberta. What does that mean to be active? Does that mean that you own a piece of land? Does that mean that you own a right to extract or a permit to extract or a concession? What does it mean? That's a very great question. So in Argentina, we're in the exploration phase. And until we've done enough exploration work to convince the government to commercialize, it remains in that type of label, meaning that we don't have the right to essentially commercially sell lithium until we convert the exploration permit into the license to develop it. In Nevada, our permits allow us to continue the exploration and a similar application process. As you move forward to a construction of a facility, we have to obtain appropriate permits with the Nevada state, which some companies are going through right now. So we're observing the process, seeing what the objections the state may have to their developments and making sure we incorporate that into our own program when we move forward. And then Alberta, it's the same thing. So you have an exploration permit, which you then convert over to a license once you've deemed it commercial and put forward your necessary permits and, and paperwork to justify that conversion. So all three of our assets are still exploration-based. We have to do a decent amount of work to move them to commercial, uh, at least where we're really understanding and, and learning about the reservoirs today. What's your time horizon to convert them? It's about anywhere from a two to five year process to collect the necessary data. It's a government approval process, so okay. you can only convert it upon obtaining enough commercial information to give them a line of sight that you can commercialize the asset. And then from there, the actual construction process can vary quite a bit. It could be another two to five years in addition to that to actually 
construct the necessary and do the detailed engineering accurately and drill the necessary wells to do the commerciality. So it can be a process that ranges from four years to over 10 years, depending on the approvals, the environmental permits, and most importantly, working well with the Indigenous nations in the region. So I guess the fact that you need these several years to understand what exactly under the surface, prove what you have to dig into, and then get the time to drill and to find an extract explains why, if I do the math right, 70% comes from evaporation ponds, 30% comes from rock mining. That means that today DLE is at 0%, but is in development a bit everywhere around the world and will become one more way to extract lithium. It won't disrupt the existing, or will it? No, it won't. For example, like the Silver Peak Group's been on production and using evaporation ponds for decades. There's the method of which they've designed their systems will not lend itself to an efficient DLE conversion process. And so DLE right now, there's probably close to 20 different types of DLE processes out there. And what I love about it is it continuously evolves. And so there's always the next group, like we work with the University of Calgary group out of there that is amazingly intelligent, has taken sort of the next evolutionary step for DLE processes. They've proven in a laboratory, but they, we have to work to transition to that, to field demonstrations. That's where the next step comes because we can do a lot of things in the laboratory. All 20 of these technologies work amazingly well on laboratory bases. None of them have really proven themselves commercially out in the field with massive volumes of water yet. But, you know, I love the enthusiasm behind it. I love the intelligence behind it. And like I said, the DLE technology that was here three years ago has already been trumped by the DLE technology being released today. So there's continuously an evolution of DLE technology that becomes more and more efficient, which then lends itself to hopefully we can reduce our electricity consumption in order to reduce the carbon footprint of these DLE processes as well. So you mentioned 20 different ways of doing DLE or 20 different processes. I tried to understand what's the difference between those. What is it like, like 50 shades of gray or what different shades are those 20 different ones? Oh, it's always the subtleties, the devils in the details, as they say. So for example, the methodology which you do the ion exchange work can vary quite a bit, for example. And then there's the aspect of the precipitation one that you had talked is a completely different process. And then there's the absorbent technologies. So those are the ones to keep it very simple for listeners. It's like having a bowling ball, a spikes with a bunch of spikes on it. And as water passes, it grabs the lithium. Well, what's happened for the next guy that figured out the bowling ball with the spikes is someone decided to drill 1 million holes through the bowling ball to increase the surface area substantially. Well, that's a nice step of evolution. So now you have a bowling ball with spikes with 1 million holes, and then the next guys come up with a better way to put spikes within those million holes to capture even more lithium. And so those are the types of evolutions we see, is people taking the existing thought process. The chemistry is always the same. It's been known for 30 years of how to extract lithium from a chemistry equation, it's just been the innovation and the excitement around the technologies people are bringing together on a nano level even to, to more excitingly capture this lithium in an environmentally friendly way. And those are the differences. It's just that little step change difference and everyone's adding their little contribution from a known point and it's, we'll see where everything ends and there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers, but we hope that we can bring some new technology to Alberta to extract our lithium here for sure. Of your three assets, you have Argentina, which is about evaporation ponds. Why for Nevada and Alberta did you go for DLE? Well, I wouldn't say that we definitively decided on DLE, simply because evaporation ponds are the only proven technology. 
Now, from my oil sands experience, there's actually new technologies on evaporation ponds that can accelerate evaporation rates in Alberta. So people, again, have the misconception that we're cold, you can't use evaporation ponds, when ironically enough, just to give you some numbers that are meaningful, in order to be a successful evaporation pond in Argentina, you have to evaporate a pond about 1.8 meters to about 2.2 meters a year of evaporation rate. You do that, you're starting down the path to get to a concentration which you can throw into your system and extract your lithium efficiently. In Alberta, our evaporation rate on average today, even with our cold winters and our hot summers, runs about 0.8 to point to 1 meter of evaporation rate naturally. Well, there's new technologies that we use in the oil and gas industry today that can enhance that evaporation rate to get it up to the 2 meters. It's just that no one's taking those next steps because everyone's hesitant about evaporation ponds in general in Alberta, just from the misconception of how, like the tailings ponds and how negative those have been for industry. I wouldn't discount evaporation, but DLE and evaporation, that maybe there's a hybrid solution too. Like there's that concept as well, that if you pre-plan DLE with evaporation ponds, maybe there's a more effective lower carbon intensive methodology as well. So like using DLE as a CRC step, so concentration step and then go into an evaporation pond or something totally different? Yeah, no, exactly. Like something to that effect. Whether one comes before the other, we'd have to see. Keep in mind, our, the one reason I like DLE in Alberta is because we have exceptionally low concentrations of lithium. Our lithium concentrations range from like 30 parts per million up to 120 parts per million. To put that in perspective, Argentina is like 300 parts per million to 600 parts per million. So that's well within what we call the economic range. And then Nevada is essentially between 150 to 300 parts per million type of range that you can have outcomes in Nevada. And so Alberta is really on the low end of the scale. So we have to be particularly innovative how we're going to unlock the Alberta opportunity. And so our goal here is to get it up to at least 25 to 35,000 parts per million through these types of processes. Because then your friends at Saltworks can come to the table, pull their design off the shelf, and anything from that point on is just literally off-the-shelf technology, whether it's Saltworks or any other group. Once you get it up to that level is always the goal. It's just trying to get that low concentration to a point where we can feed it to the Saltworks of the world to take it to the refined lithium processes. You mentioned how you're teaming up with the University of Calgary. What's the shape of that partnership? Does it mean that you have some PhD students which are working in your offices or is it a more formal partnership or what's the way to work with that scene? Oh, it's just a friendly partnership, a PhD professor <laughs> that is expert originally at hydrocarbon extractions is where they work towards how to apply that technology to lithium. And this is, again, the evolution of bridging the gaps between oil and gas and lithium extraction. And the nature right now is just support. So what we do is we try to source lithium samples for them that we want to do the analysis on their lab. So we get them real world samples to try and determine what hiccups could be in their type of technology extraction, as well as we bridge the gaps with industry. We're fairly well known in the oil and gas industry. And so our goal is to try and translate this technology into the energy industry as best as possible. And we help facilitate that for them as well. And so that jointly we can empower them with access to real life brines and they do the analysis and hopefully they empower us with new technologies that the industry can benefit from, not just us. The goal at this stage is we're so early in this industry, we all have to work together as partners. Being competitive works to no one's advantage right now. You mentioned partners, if I'm right, you're working with Litus 
lilac and core separation so what is the role of each of the parties in that collaboration yeah that's a good question it's the idea of just keeping the concepts open and having the information flow lilac solutions out of california really well-funded entity private backed by bill gates mit's involved with that technology evolution they're active around the world looking for lithium plays to apply their technology to They work in the above 200 to 400 milligram per liter range. That's their window of success for their application of their technologies. Coke has developed various types of lithium and evolved their lithium separation technologies. But again, they fall in that 200 to 400, but have real on-the-ground experience in the U.S. trying to commercialize and attempting to commercialize their technologies in the U.S. Lilac has actually successfully partnered in Argentina with a field operation that has proven very positive to date. So Lilac sort of has proven itself in Argentina so far. Coke has proven itself in U.S. so far. And Lightus up in Canada is in the process of a lower concentration. Their window is sub 100 milligrams, which falls into those reservoirs there. So each one has its specialty for the reservoir types. And that's what we're looking for is not necessarily one solution to fit all. What's the best solution for the reservoirs we're pursuing? For me to get that construct of who does what, let me just take you 10 years in the future. Like your exploration is done, you've drilled, you've started operating, you're producing. In that construct, so 10 years in the future, are you like the mother company with everything in-house or is it like a joint venture on each of these sites where these technology companies have their own word or how is it going to be built? Yeah, well, yeah, 10 years out, I'd love to be vertically integrated. So if we have a solution that works best in a basin, I'd like that to be in-house as best as possible. Allows us to control our destiny, allows us to control the design aspects. And more importantly, operations in the field need to be dynamic. We need to have hands-on and just having lots of field experience. Things go wrong and having that in-house technology expertise allows us to efficiently restore or get production back in an efficient period of time. So I'm a big fan of vertically integrating, but at the same side, I would never house or keep that to ourselves. Our goal would be to partner with other lithium opportunity exploration guys and development people that if we had that technology in-house, I want to make sure it's available to them economically as well, because it benefits everybody to have a healthy lithium extraction and critical minerals entity to essentially isolate and not share the technology with others doesn't work well for in the industry in general. And plus then it'd be harder to find qualified employees. You want to encourage more people to transition. And the key thing is to make sure there's employees and enough employees in the industry that we can properly add to the benefit and transition people from oil and gas into the critical minerals as efficiently as possible. In terms of HR, that's the play at work. It's converting the oil and gas specialists into those more sustainable fields. Exactly, exactly. They already have the skill set. It's one of those things that they just don't know what they don't know type of situation. Like they have the skill set that is perfectly applicable. They just don't know that they're very valuable for lithium extraction. And it's just teaching them the applications. And once a lot of people realize that actually my geology background directly applies, my engineering background directly applies, my geophysical background directly applies, it checks so many boxes for transitioning to critical elements extraction. It's just getting the word out there and really expanding and opening up people's minds in terms of the new emerging industry. So I've taken you 10 years in the future. What's your vision today of these 10 years in the future? I hear that you'd like to be vertically integrated, but do you have a certain level of certainty today about 
how you're going to build that or are you in a phase where actually everything is possible? Well, as you've heard from the various entities that we house under our Heathers Corporation, we're a big believer of everything's possible. <laughs> so we're, so like I said, under us, we have emerging geothermal technologies we're working on for sustained greenhouse development for remote communities. We have a fiber optics network company we're working on developing. We have our lithium extraction technologies we're evolving. I'm a big believer of investing widely to try and just capture as much as possible because you don't know which one is going to be sort of the winner at the end of the day. You just want to keep a diversified portfolio of opportunities. And when it comes to the lithium extraction, that's exactly our perspective. We're open-minded, whether it's absorption technologies, ion exchange technology, precipitation technologies with some type of enhanced catalyst to do that. Whatever one makes sense, but is also as low carbon intensity as possible is also very important because you could have the best direct lithium extraction technology but unfortunately, when you go to sell your lithium, one of the criteria that a lot of these guys haven't factored into their analysis yet is the purchasers of that lithium want to know what was the carbon intensity? How many tons of CO2 did it take per ton of lithium to, for you to make this? And they're gonna go down their list and they're gonna rank their purchases and they'll pay a premium for those that are low intensity and you may be punished for being too carbon intensive. So DLE, what we have to really watch if you're looking 10 years in the future is who's the most carbon intense entity and who has taken the extra time to reduce that will be the ones you want to partner with. We mentioned quite generally lithium since the beginning of that conversation, but what is it exactly that you aim to produce in terms of type of lithium or grade of lithium? Well, this could be a conversation onto itself because <laughs> this is a very <laughs> big topic. So the two primary products that are off the shelf today, commercial for yielding, are either lithium carbonate or lithium chloride, various, various mm -hmm. mechanisms. Now, what is the most efficient for transportation is actually lithium carbonate. Lithium chloride carries a certain amount of issues if you're going to be transporting and packaging that you have to be more environmentally sensitive and watch out for employee safety is a big concern with lithium chloride now one thing i'd love to propose and i wish more would give consideration to with these aspirations of the u.s to create these battery facilities so right now all this product is essentially heading over to china for further refinement to produce into your battery what we need to do is do like a lithium concentrate facility and what that means is Rather than refining it to a certain point in the field, which almost no junior company can affordably do today, because you're talking about $800 million plus of capital requirement to get to these levels, why don't we take a step back and create refineries that can accept lower concentration lithiums? And then we can make all these junior opportunities more economic because they only have to refine it, evaporate it a bit, get it up to 25,000 parts per million and ship off the fluid in tankers. And then you build multiple concentrate facilities, which will take that concentration, use the whatever salt works technology, just because you mentioned them earlier, and take it to a refining level themselves. So I think the investment in refining locally that can take lower concentrations would be a brilliant way to bridge the gap to make all the junior guys remain interested in exploration and allow them a path to commercialization. You mentioned all these junior guys and all that striving ecosystem in North America, actually on both sides of the border between the US and Canada. From my research, which probably didn't find everybody, I identified about 40, 45 companies in North America alone, which are acting on 
various parts of that extraction, but all linked to that extraction. So one way to look at it is to think it's like this era pre-Blu-ray, where you had all the alternatives and one day the Blu-ray came up and killed all the others because it just happened to be better. The other is exactly what you explained, to say there's probably an economy of scale if you can find a way to materialize the resources and then have a full vertical in North America, which can deal with all the stages. So how do you team up with the other members of that ecosystem? I personally reached out to a number of the junior guys just to stay in contact, keep an understanding of their evolution of what they're doing, what contacts they're making. But it is a bit of a process. The government does need to provide essentially an incentive to construct refineries. And this has been an issue, ironically, nothing. Canada, many decades ago, could have had the chance to be a large refiner of in our energy system for oil and gas, for example. At the time, they, they chose not to. And now, to our detriment, Canada is now the will of the U.S. refiner. Like 50% of our crude has no functional use until it gets to a refinery. So it has to be piped through the U.S., Big risk on piping long distances, pipeline breaks, things like that provide environmental risk versus we could have built many refineries much closer to home, saved ourselves both the transportation costs, the environmental risk costs, and also been an active contributor to the world economy. Lithium's the same way. We have a decision point coming up where we have all these junior producers who are looking for exploration opportunities for lithium extraction. The government needs to provide that window to say we'll support it by allowing or providing some type of tax incentives for U.S. companies to come to Canada, construct intermediate refinery processes so that the junior producers can flourish. It'll encourage more investment in exploration. Because right now, if you're a junior producer, you have to actually do your budgets as if you're going to take it to full commercialization. Well, a $15 million market cap company in no way can get line of sight on $800 million of capital today. I can put it down in a preliminary economic assessment report, but it's almost worthless <laughs> because you don't have that means to export. You don't have the means of the market. And like I said, a big unknown is whether or not your DLE technology, let's say, would even meet the classification of carbon intensity that will allow you to export your lithium. So there's lots of risks involved at this stage if we don't find that intermediate bridge to be successful. That entire market is obviously driven today by the battery revolution or the EV revolution, depending on how we want to look at it, which is driving the costs up. But to which extent can those costs be driven up? I mean, again, according to my very short research, the price was multiplied by five last year, but there's probably a cap. And at some point, the new capacities of production will at least stop the increase. Is it something you have to take in consideration when you are dimensioning your assets and looking at what is going to be break-even and sustainable and then profitable? Yeah, that, that's something that we actively monitor. To give you some research background, for example, China in general is a ballpark, is about 10 years ahead of North America on all this thought process of critical minerals. To put it in perspective, like China realizes that if it wants to move to electric vehicle, which will be the largest electric vehicle hub in the world, it needed to secure critical minerals early on. So a good example is like cobalt's a key part of the battery components. So you have lithium, cobalt, nickel as some of your key elements you need as part of the critical elements for your battery. Well, China, just to give you perspective, one of the key cobalt places in the world is the Congo. China's imports from Congo in 1990s was about 1.9 million with an M. 
Today, it is now $9 billion with a B. They recognized early on to source the critical elements they need for an electric future that they need to securitize the key source of critical elements. Now, the situation is no one else can get access to that market. They're the largest importer and exporter of goods from Congo. They control that economy, have it well in hand, and now indefinitely will have that ability for themselves to meet their EV demand. Now, what's happened is the U.S. and Canada are now going to fight the good fight and they're going to have to pay more for the product, which is going to lend itself to challenges, like you said, on costs just across the board and may cost out a number of potential consumers. So the potential forecast for EVs in California and the U.S. may not come to fruition, honestly. There's the components of the car itself, which will be likely more expensive. But the second component is the electrical grid systems aren't designed for that. There's no way, for example, in Alberta that we can put in, for example, like a new wind farm if we want it to be green on the eastern side of Alberta, because our electrical system in no way can handle any type of uncertainty, variable electricity input anymore. So we're hamstrung by not just the EV side, but the distribution system is so archaic that it can no way support an accelerated EV program that is currently being proposed for 2035 in both Canada and the U.S. It always sounds good from politicians, but when you actually do the math, it doesn't actually work out at all. But would that influence the price of lithium? That will increase the price of lithium. It's good for, obviously, the base exporter, like ourselves, hopefully, over the next 10 years. It's just concerning from a, an environmental standpoint that we're not necessarily going to achieve our green goals as efficiently as we could. And this is where, like I said, if the government starts to realize that vertically integrating within your own region of the resource can lend itself to that advantage. And that's what China has demonstrated. We need to actually take a, a note out of their book from securitizing our own resources to be able to actually refine our own resources. We can't be dependent on China for the next 10, 20 years of refining our batteries any further. That's a big political risk. Talking of this energy question, resources, and also a field you're involved in, if I'm right, you're also active in geothermal extraction. It sounds like the good counterpart to any kind of lithium extraction, because if already you're taking that water, which is more or less rich in lithium, if it has some geothermal value, then you can double up with an energy play. Was that your idea to find this synergistic move between the two, or is it just a coincidence? No, it was by design. So we're very geothermally focused as well. And this lends itself to the tailing or essentially the evaporation pond design in Alberta. We can use natural geothermal heat to keep the temperature of the evaporation ponds higher to accelerate evaporation rates in Alberta on an exceptionally low carbon basis. Mm -hmm. Because when I don't need the electricity, I have my natural heat from the earth providing natural heat to a pond, providing fresh water to our atmosphere while we extract the lithium. It's actually a very nice story once people get their minds around that the evaporation ponds are not like contaminated tailings ponds. And unfortunately, people tend to relate those two as the one and the same. So our evaporation ponds we could use with the geothermal technology would also keep the carbon footprint amazingly low. The carbon intensity would be very low on that type of process. So I'm very pro moving along our geothermal technology in parallel with the lithium extraction. I think they go hand in hand for sure. So it's not about being exothermic or producing energy. It's about reducing the carbon intensity and optimizing the lithium extraction process. Yes. It sounds like a great synergy and a cool opportunity, if I'm 
playing the devil advocates here, it's like adding uncertainty on the uncertainty. So it's like doubling up the technological risk. How can you reassure me that's a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is geothermal technology has made decades of proven success. And so you can go to a number of countries, Iceland, Sweden, Norway, and go into their systems. And there's a lot of geothermally positive construction projects, residential, commercial projects. So what's nice is geothermal gradients and understanding geothermal technologies and how to convert that to surface heat, very much proven technology. And then evaporation ponds, obviously very much proven technology with the work that's been done with 70% of your lithium currently being extracted via that means we've had 50 years of evaporation ponds that have proven themselves as well. Where that next step is actually the risk for us is DLE. How do you integrate this DLE system without using so much electricity? This is the largest issue we have. It goes to the point of, for example, I can produce as much hydrogen as you want. If you give me infinite amount of electricity and a bottle of water off to the race as I go, is that the most efficient way when my electricity is produced by methane? Am I creating hydrogen, but creating a larger carbon intensity issue by just utilizing high intensity electricity that's based on methane? That's the balancer we were trying to strike with the direct lithium extraction technologies. You've spoken in very positive terms about these junior companies and this striving ecosystem, which is aiming to develop the third path of the DLE. I've also heard a different rap sometimes when discussing with some of these actors in this field who told me that they are the legit companies and they are the ones which sound a bit more like a really venture investment. It might be a big thing or it might be a major failure. So is it a risky field? I'm not investment podcast at all. I'm just trying to understand if there are various shades of risk in that field. Oh, yes. Huge. <laughs> so there is, <laughs> from a risk perspective, it's funny because we've gone through some of the data of the DLE processes, the ones we've mentioned, plus a number of ones we haven't mentioned. Ironically enough, as a blanket statement, they all work. So there's no one out there that's claiming to have DLE that definitively doesn't work. They all work. On a laboratory basis, to a certain extent, they all do various degrees of success with recovery. So it's not a matter of, are they the misleading? They're not misleading They all do work to certain levels. The challenge that we have is that transition to field operations. It's one thing when I'm running a cup full of or a bucket full of water in my lab and I extract lithium and I'm all celebratory that it took 95% of lithium out. Great. The challenge is when I'm running 100,000 barrels of fluid a day past the same processes, that's much, much more complex. And so this is where the big technology gap we have today is that we have not proven any capability to essentially scale up all these lab opportunities. So all the lab ones work, no problem. It's just scale. Scaling is where your investment risk is. It's actually an analogy that Wim Odenart made on that microphone a while ago, where he explains that adult clothing is not baby clothing made larger. It's There's a difference <laughs> when you're scaling up that those processes. In terms of scaling up, Will you explain in the beginning how you are looking at what's exactly the potential of the assets you're in? At some point, you will be drilling. You're looking at those DLE technologies. Will they go in steps or do you directly go for the full scale? They will be in steps. I'm an engineer by background. 
And I would never knowingly take a silly risk that I'm going to go from a lab to like a 500,000 barrel a day water production facility. That's a very naive step to take just in life. That's guaranteed failure for anyone claims they're going to do that for sure. So the logical steps are you have your laboratory set up and then your next scale should just be one well. One well is easy to do. One well is just a field application. You may not get the economics because you don't have the volume throughput, but you'll get the understanding of the operation and extraction. So you literally just move up to a one well. Whether your one well produces 2,000 barrels a day of water or 10,000 barrels a day of water, that should technically be your next scale. And then from the one well, we go to a battery system to see what was wrong with the one well? What prevented me from being commercial with the one well is what you ask yourself. And then is it a volume issue or is it a technology issue? And then you determine, then you scale up from that point. So then I go to what's called a battery level where I'll now look at, take my two to 10,000 barrel a day concept and then I move it up to 50. And then if I can achieve successful commercial success at 50, then I have a much higher degree of certainty that I can either copy my 50, for example, with that facility four times and have a 200,000 barrels a day or do I gross up to a 200,000 barrel a day facility? That allows my optionality for commerciality. So there are many steps you have to take. And I would never invest in a company that ever makes a claim that we were successful in the lab at 50 barrels a day or 10 barrels a day. And now I'm going to build like a 500,000 barrel a day facility. I wait for the promote on the stock and then sell all of my stock. <laughs> because <laughs> there's, there's a high probability of failure on that, that outcome. Nice pump and dump. (laughs) Exactly. Those are design pump and dumps, as we call it, the old Vancouver promotes, what those used to be nicknamed as. (laughs) In terms of investment right now, that sector is getting quite a lot of investment. You mentioned these steps towards profitability. What's the horizon at which those companies, including yours in that sub-application of this extraction of lithium, when do you expect to be profitable? Yeah, that's a very... Big question again, though, because the, there's many avenues you can go down for that analysis. But just as a good rule of thumb, you start the timeline for exploration can be like a couple of years to four years, for example. So if we factor in four years just to determine the resource size. And then from that point, I start engaging engineering for more detailed engineering for a pilot facility. That's another two years. So you're up to six years. And then after my pilot facility to construct and do detailed engineering for the next facility is another at least two years. And so you're up to eight years just to get up to my decision point. Do I have something I can scale or not scale? So you're eight years out to reach a commercial decision. And then from there, it's a determination of whether I'm not get, whether I make multiple copies of that level or if I make one large facility. So a large facility could take up to three to four years, depending on the components. If you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of barrels a day, some of those components could have a year plus lead time to deliver. And especially the drilling program. Some of, if you do the math on some of the theoretical drilling programs that need to occur, these companies on lithium brine in their PAs have to drill like hundreds of wells to achieve their production levels. Well, I'd be surprised if you can find rigs. The oil and gas industry still exists, and now you're going to compete with a couple hundred wells in the field. So you're going to be delayed for years for that. So eight years to just be commercial decision point if you're going to be big or if you're going to be multiples of a small unit, and then it could be another two to five years post that. So you're a decade out from definitive commercial production if we're starting today. And to place you on that timeline, if I'm right, you intend to start drilling this year. Is that right? Yeah, if we can, our, again, hurdle to success is obtain the capital for the programs. 
So we just were listed last year. We self-financed ourselves with a couple million dollars a seed. We haven't done an offering publicly yet, but we need to look towards obtaining the capital for a program to start drilling. So that's our goal for 2023 is to start putting some wells. I think we have a very good idea of what we want to do. We just need to now raise the necessary capital to achieve our goals. So if people listening to that would like to invest in your company, how can they do that? Well, they're always welcome to drop us a line at info at heliosx.ca. So that's I-N-F-O at H-E-L-I-O-S-X.ca. And we'd be happy to have further discussions with them if they're interested. So I'll put the link in the show notes and which type of investors, which type of profiles would be the right partners for you? Well, I'm very much in favor of those that are like the aspect of critical mineral investments with a positive environmental attitude. The goal here is just not to be singular on a one well outcome, but to work collaboratively with industry, evolve all together the technologies for all of us to be successful and to continue the collaboration with like the universities, other corporations, and those that appreciate the work we do with First Nations and to work in trying to empower First Nations with opportunities for both employment as well as empower them with new technology understandings that can help enhance their economic outcomes as well. So that's the nature of the ideal profile because that shares the same philosophies we do. I think that answer gives a strong hint for the last question I have for you in that deep dive, which is, what's your metric for impact? What will tell you in, let's say, 10 years that you had a positive impact? Well, the, yeah, a couple of metrics, obviously. Success with the regional nations. That's easy to see when you see positive economic development. And we work with First Nations on that basis. And you visually see the benefits to the nation by reinvestments to the nation for enhancing their well-being. Low carbon intensity is obviously a key parameter for us. So if we're successful, we'll be able to bring to the market lithium production at the lowest carbon intensity possible. And that's definitely one of our goals. It's useless to bring on new critical minerals if we're costing the environment more than the benefit of the lithium battery for EVs. <laughs> it's sort of contrary to the whole goal of what we're all trying to achieve. Well, Christopher, it's been an incredible exploration with you of that quite fascinating field. I could keep that going for a while, but I have to be conscious of your time at some point. So if that's right with you, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Oh, sure. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So these are quick question and answers, right? Exactly. I'm okay. trying to keep the question short. You can try to keep the answers short. I'm never cutting the microphone and usually I'm the one doing segues. So, so don't worry. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? The most exciting project is the work with the University of Calgary to try and bring to fruition the direct lithium extraction technologies at a very low concentration. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Well, not all First Nations are the same. We know this, but working with the Argentine nations is just a learning process and everyone has their particular cultural nuances. And it, I just appreciate learning the new cultural approach and trying to reapply it in the future to, to be more sensitive to other nations' needs and, and cultural outcomes. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Well, I hope to pass on a lot more of the math to the next generation. So I'll recruit some younger engineers to sit down and crunch the numbers more effectively and efficiently. I'd love to be able to pass on the technology know-how to the next generation so that they can carry the torch, so to speak. Because today, a lot of the maths is still with you. It is. Unfortunately, I have to sit down and spend a lot of time doing all the technology analysis. 
<laughs> what is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I think the ability to open up the understanding of the nature of the types of waters and, and passing on that understanding to the particular Indigenous groups that are in close proximity to those waters. I think there is definitely a lack of understanding of the different types and what's good water and what's bad water. All of it is usually deemed good, and that tends to carry on issues when we are dealing with environmental approvals and that. And so I think it's just we really need to work on education on that front. And last question, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite as soon as possible on that microphone? Well, it would be a dream, but I always like Christine Lagarde. <laughs> She's an amazing, talented woman that carries a lot of strength globally. She has an amazing perspective on balancing the environment and economics. I know that would be the ideal dream. And if she were to be on there, I'd love to be on there with her for questions and answers because I think she's a brilliant woman with amazing insight, balancing both the economic needs of the globe, but also incorporating realistic climate achievements. And so she's just a wonderful leader around the world. So that would be the dream ask for the program. <laughs> Well, I'll give it a shot, but beyond playing the argument of let's have a French guy with a French woman, I'm not sure I have much more to offer, but I'll try it. <laughs> Christopher, it's been awesome to have you on the show. If people want to follow up with you beyond the email you already shared, is there another place where they can reach out to you? Our email is the best. I am on LinkedIn as well. And so more than happy to add links and have conversations on LinkedIn. So if they want to take that social media platform, more than happy to continue the conversations. Well, I'll put the links as well in the show notes. Thanks a lot for having been my guide in that exploration. And I wish to see if in 10 years that vertically integrated Helios X is exactly what you described and we dreamed a bit together today. I'm pretty sure it's going to be an amazing journey and I'll be very happy to follow that. Thanks a lot. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time and really enjoyed the questions. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.